thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, the camel virus that's killing people in the Middle East, how the next generation of smartphones could lead to an augmented reality revolution, and what might the proposed takeover of the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca mean for British jobs? Plus, we take a look at power transmission systems of tomorrow. How will the national grid adapt to more uncertain supply sources like solar? How can energy be stored in a gravel pit? And we'll find out about the next generation of ultra-high-voltage supply systems. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First, the MERS-CoV coronavirus, which was in the news after health officials issued advice to passengers when a man from Saudi Arabia was admitted to hospital in Chicago after flying through Heathrow Airport. He was on a British Airways plane from Riyadh, and those sitting near him were advised to contact the NHS if they felt unwell. MERS-CoV stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, and it seems to be spreading from Saudi Arabia, with nearly 500 people infected so far and more than 100 deaths. Now, new research suggests that you should steer clear of camels if you want to avoid catching it. I caught up with virus expert Professor Wendy Barclay from Imperial College to get the latest. MERS is a newly discovered virus, and it's a member of a class of viruses called the coronaviruses. And until just a few years ago, until the early um, 2000s, the only coronaviruses that we knew about that infected human beings caused mild colds. And then around about 2003, along came a brand new coronavirus called SARS, which many listeners will have heard of, which of course was a much more serious disease in humans and, and, and caused deaths. And now we have this other new virus called MERS, which is in the same family. So genetically speaking, it's similar to those, but coming from from a different place, a a different geographical part of the world, and obviously causing, again, much more serious respiratory infections, at least in some people. What do we know about where this virus has come from? Well, originally people thought that the virus came from bats, And that may well still be the case. Bats are a group of mammals which seem to harbour many, many viruses, which can occasionally be very harmful if they cross into people. SARS, we think, came from bats originally, and Ebola virus and other things that are are much more familiar to listeners also come from there. And probably the ancient precursor of MERS has come from bats. But it now seems, because of some recent data, that the direct origin of the viruses that have been infecting people in the Middle East are camels. This MERS virus seems to be widespread in dromedary camels in places like Saudi Arabia and Oman. And people seem to be catching the virus through some sort of contact with the camels. 
Now, this seems very strange to me. Are there any examples of people catching diseases from their camels before? Not that I'm aware of, but I think what's very interesting is that now we start looking at camels. The camels themselves seem to have lots of different viruses in them, and the coronaviruses in general seem to sit in animal species and occasionally jump across into people. So there are other coronaviruses which have now been discovered which sit in other animals in that part of the world, in the Middle East, because that's where people have been really looking recently. For example, goats and sheep are other common animals that are farmed in that part of the world, and they've also got coronaviruses in them. But these ones don't appear at the moment to be jumping into people. I think it's quite likely that, you know, lots of the animals that that we deal with on a daily basis have, have got loads of viruses in them, but only rarely do they actually cross into humans. And this new virus does seem quite scary. And you're saying that viruses can be harboured by all kinds of animals that we may live closely with or work with. Should we actually be concerned about this new virus outbreak? How scared should I be? Well, at the moment, the number of cases of MERS is in the hundreds, not necessarily in the thousands yet. When we have a new virus like this, there's a combination of two things going on. One is that the virus itself perhaps is being able to jump into humans more frequently, but another is that the harder people look, the more they find it as well. So we have to be careful not to assume straight away that everything's completely changed. It might just be that we're picking these up now that we're looking. What we must emphasise is that so far this virus is jumping across from camels into humans, but isn't really passing from one person to another very efficiently. Although there is some human-to-human transmission, that isn't what we would call self-sustaining. So at the moment, this virus isn't about to cause a pandemic because we need sustained human-to-human transmission for that to happen. On the other hand, in some individuals, the MERS virus has been very serious, But many of those people who've suffered the worst cases are people who've already got something else wrong with them. They've got what we call comorbidities, uh, health problems, um, perhaps an immune system that isn't working properly or that that they're they're rather elderly and frail and not able to cope with this virus. And, And in healthier people, the virus has only caused much milder disease. At the moment, we should watch very carefully what's going on, keep a check, because viruses can mutate and can change their characters. But I don't think this is about to break into a pandemic tomorrow. That's Wendy Barclay from Imperial College in London. And we've heard, actually, in the meantime, that the gentleman who was admitted to hospital in Chicago has now recovered and he's been sent home. He's judged to be no further threat. But I would, in the meantime, steer clear of any camels with a cough. Technology now and a new gadget that Google are about to unleash on the world. It's called Tango. Cambridge computer scientist Ramsey Farragher is in California and he's been to Google's HQ to play with this next generation smartphone that even comes built in with a laser. I caught up with him to find out what it can do. I got my hands on their Project Tango, which is their brand new prototype smartphone. It's everything you expect in a current smartphone, except it also contains a 3D laser scanner, three different cameras and two dedicated image processing chips. So it can literally see and sense and map and image the world around it better than humans can. What does it look like, Ramsey? Well, it looks like a normal smartphone. It's a little bit heavier and a little bit thicker. I think it's got a slightly larger battery as well because of all of the power consumption. So on the back of the phone, where we would normally have just that one eye of a camera, there are two, are there? 
there's three uh, things you notice. There's the normal camera you see, then there's a source for a laser beam because it sprays infrared laser in order to detect the distance to objects. And then there's a special fisheye infrared lens that picks all of that infrared laser light back up and measures which angle and direction it all came back from. So what's the point of this? How would I use it or how is it going to change my life? Google have made 200 of these devices and given them to developers in order for people to start playing with them and start doing cool stuff. And a lot of the things that I saw a couple of days ago, it was all augmented reality games and augmented reality applications. So because Tango can see the environment and it knows the distances and positions of all the objects in the scene, it can overlay information on the camera screen to change what you see of the world. So for example, I was chasing a cartoon bunny around the Google offices. So I could see this little rabbit and it could uh, hide behind furniture. You know, it could jump up onto objects in the environment, even though it was just this virtual cartoon bunny. And I think a big part of this will be playing computer games with people outside in the real world and interacting with the environment. Could something like this be used to overlay anatomical information or a readout on the, on the surface of the patient so the surgeon knows more precisely where that blood vessel is on the patient? The, the kind of technology they're using, this laser-based camera technique, it will be able to overlay information on the sort of real world to within a few millimetres of accuracy. So you can see lots of applications for educational purposes and, uh, yeah, sort of life-saving purposes. You can see a future where instead of people going on YouTube to look up how to fix their car engine and having to sort of memorise it all, you can stand there, hold your phone up, look at your car engine, and it'll all be shown to you on the screen what you need to do, what you need to lift, what you need to change, and so on. And there's no danger with you going around zapping people with lasers flying out the back of your phone? It's low-power infrared light that's being generated. It's actually a technology called structured light. It projects a certain pattern of spots onto the world. And if you are projecting onto a perfectly flat wall, it knows exactly what those spots should look like. But if there's objects in the way, the spots effectively move. And the camera looks for these displaced spots and works out that there's an object in the way. So it's eye safe. It's not going to blind people. Now, you're out in California, not just to go and see what Google are up to, but to go to a navigation conference. So what's doing the rounds at the conference? I'm sure everyone is familiar with how much the USA uses drones, not only in military operations, but there's growing use of autonomous aerial vehicles for domestic purposes as well. I'm sure we all remember the news story about the Amazon delivery drone uh, back in December. And the Federal Aviation Authority, the FAA over here, has been trying to crack down on this commercial use. Why is the FAA trying to stop people doing this? People have been building their own homemade aircraft for donkeys here, haven't they? What's wrong with that? It is all snowballing. They're now very cheap. They're very easy to fly. They have lots of onboard intelligence that makes them easy to fly. And one of the biggest advances over the last few years has been what's called first-person view flight. So you wear a pair of goggles and you fly the plane as if you're sat in the cockpit. Now, this means you can fly it for half an hour in one direction at maybe 50 or 60 miles an hour, maintaining a, a link via the mobile phone network. So there are concerns over people making use of them for potentially uh, dodgy means. And so the FA is trying to crack down on people using these technologies. But a couple of months ago, this chap called uh, Raphael Perker was fined £10,000 by the FAA for flying his drone in what they said was a dangerous manner. But he sued the FAA, claiming they had no authority to fine him or to take his drone off him. And he won. 
And basically, he argued in court, or his lawyer did, that they hadn't gone through the correct legal processes to turn these things into actual law. They were actually just recommendations. The judge agreed. And it means that, well, in the words of some of my colleagues over here in the States, it's the Wild West. People can go outside and fly their drones around and the FAA can't come after them yet. Ramsey Farragher speaking to us from Google's headquarters in California. I wouldn't mind one of those drones. How about you, Kat? (laughs) Yeah, if it would bring my washing in, that'd be great. The Royal College of Physicians have issued a report looking at the standard of asthma care in the UK. There are over 5 million asthmatics in Britain, I'm one included, and last year there were more than 1,000 deaths from the condition, one of the highest rates in Europe. Medical staff, the report says, need to be better trained to recognise the symptoms of the disease. Here's your quick-fire science on the condition with Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble. Asthma affects the small airways or bronchioles which carry air in and out of the lungs, causing wheezing, difficulty breathing and in some serious cases, death. When an asthma sufferer comes into contact with something that irritates their lungs, the muscles in the airways contract, causing the airways to narrow and making it hard to breathe. The lining of the airways also becomes inflamed, leading to a build-up of sticky mucus, making breathing even harder. Most people have triggers for their asthma, including cold air or things they're allergic to. In some cases, anxiety and even laughter can trigger an attack. Some people think that asthma has become more common as our lives have become more hygienic. Exposure to bacteria and viruses in childhood may help the immune system recognise what's dangerous. And without this, it can overreact to harmless triggers, causing asthma and allergies. However, this isn't the whole story. Pollutants in the environment and being exposed to cigarette smoke can also increase your chances of developing asthma. There's currently no cure, although it can be managed using a combination of drugs and lifestyle changes, like taking regular exercise and avoiding triggers. Drugs prescribed for asthma are delivered via inhalers, and there's two main types, relievers and preventative inhalers. Relievers contain bronchodilators which widen the airways and are taken when symptoms are felt. They're usually quick to work but short-acting. Preventative inhalers, on the other hand, should be used daily. They usually contain steroids which reduce inflammation in the airways. They don't work immediately but build up over time to reduce symptoms. Asthma attacks normally occur after a gradual worsening of symptoms over a few days, so any changes should never be ignored. If you are with someone who is having an asthma attack, you should help them to take two puffs of their inhaler, followed by slow, deep breaths. Repeat every two minutes until they've had ten puffs, and if they don't start to feel better, call an ambulance. Sound advice from Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble. And you can get hold of all of our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. Thank you, Kat. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. The present takeover bid of the US company Pfizer values the UK pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca at over £60 billion. So far, AstraZeneca's board have rejected Pfizer's offer and politicians and commentators are expressing alarm at what a merger between the two companies might mean for British jobs and British tax revenues. But why are Pfizer so interested in acquiring AstraZeneca and is it actually such a bad thing for Britain if they do? Well, George Freeman is a former venture capitalist. He's now a Conservative MP 
for Mid-Norfolk and also the Life Sciences Advisor to the government. For the last 50 or so years post-war, we've been able to rely on the pharmaceutical industry to bring us every year new drugs, new treatments, new devices, a constant stream of extraordinary medical innovations. And if one thinks back, cancer, even 20, 30 years ago, was a death sentence. 98% of women now survive breast cancer. So extraordinary advances, but we have a problem in the pharmaceutical sector worldwide. The cost and time of developing new medicines has got too long and too high. They can't afford to develop new medicines for us. We in the West can't afford anymore to buy these incredibly expensive new medicines. And increasingly, what we've realized is the more we know about disease and the more we know about genetics, actually what was yesterday the blockbuster drug that we wanted, today isn't. What we need now are targeted and personalized medicines. And the more scientists are unlocking the science to understand disease, it's actually breaking down the market. So the whole model is changing, and uh, the big pharmaceutical industries uh, companies are really having to reinvent themselves. And today, it's all about working in hospitals with patients, with charities, looking at patients who've actually got disease, and designing drugs for the patients who really need them. For too long, we've been buying drugs that the industry promises will work in everybody. And actually, in order for them to be safe in everybody, they're not working effectively in every patient. We're wasting a lot of money giving the wrong drugs to the wrong people. So how will this proposed merger between Pfizer and AstraZeneca deliver a solution to that problem? This merger is absolutely driven by this, this dynamic. Here in the UK, we set out three years ago, the Prime Minister set out a groundbreaking 10-year life science strategy to make Britain the best place in the world to develop modern medicines. Um, AstraZeneca... Last year, in a stunning announcement, completely reinvented the way they work as a company. They closed down their old factories and moved to Cambridge, England, and to embed themselves in the extraordinary cluster of hospital, university, and little companies. Pfizer, in many ways, have been the poster child for what the industry has been doing for the last few decades, buying up other companies in the quest to continue to deliver profits. But all these industries, all these companies, have got a basic problem that their pipeline of new drugs is getting weaker. And so when Pfizer announced that they're buying AstraZeneca, it's an extraordinary moment. And the question in the industry is, is this Pfizer buying the AstraZeneca model of 21st century drug design? Or is this the last gasp, if you like, of the old model of a pharmaceutical company buying the other one out to disguise their underlying weakness in their pipeline? But cynics could say, George, that uh, why doesn't Pfizer just reinvent itself the way that AstraZeneca have then, if it's so successful? That's a really interesting question, and many people in the industry and many people within Pfizer are very excited by the fact that Pfizer are buying into this UK model of a hospital-based 21st century medicines design through acquiring AstraZeneca. And so there's a really interesting question here, I think, for the UK. I think we ought to be neutral about who owns these companies. The question is, is the research being done in the UK? Are British patients going to benefit are British patients going to start getting access to new medicines again? There's a parallel here with the automotive industry. Through the crisis in the 70s, the British car industry has reinvented itself through Formula One, high-end components, and supply chain. We've now become a net exporter of cars again. Now, the companies making those cars are largely foreign-owned, but the employment, the R&D, the technology, the assembly, the factories, the jobs are here in Britain. And there's a similar thing going on in the pharmaceutical industry. I think we should be focusing on the level of commitment that companies like Pfizer and AZ are making to R&D and not worry so much about the ownership. The truth is these are global companies with global investor 
shareholder bases, global management, their international businesses. The key is, are they investing here in Britain in research for the benefit of British patients? What we should be doing, I think, is saying to Pfizer and indeed to AstraZeneca, we will sign with you a 10-year research agreement. We, the UK government, all the agencies involved here will sign a 10-year research agreement. They're very standard in the industry in which we make a series of reciprocal commitments to you and you to us. We'll commit to all the things we set out in our strategy to adopt uh, innovative medicines more quickly, fast tracking of clinical trials, quicker recruitment of patients, less bureaucracy, more access to working with doctors and patients in the NHS through the National Institute for Health Research. That is the key to unlocking what we all want to see, which is investment in the UK. Member of Parliament George Freeman, who's also the UK government's life sciences advisor. Now, if you're listening to The Naked Scientists on a radio over medium wave, the transmissions you're tuning into might be interfering with the migration patterns of nearby birds, according to new research from Germany. A team there was studying the direction that robins set off on their migratory journeys by putting the birds in small funnels called orientation cages in darkened huts. But something was wrong, as the birds just didn't seem to know where to go. Until the researchers tried screening out electromagnetic radiation, or radio waves to you and me, from the huts by surrounding them with a shielding device called a Faraday cage. Here's lead researcher Henrik Moritzen. For two to three years, we couldn't get the birds to orient in these orientation cages that we use to test their behavioural preferences. And that's very strange because that experiment has worked all over the world for about 40 years. Any time we, we tried them for a decent amount of time, they were basically just one day jumping in that direction, next day jumping in that direction, and that's not what you would normally expect. Birds show migratory restlessness and it's directed in the direction in which they want to fly. So normally they should jump to the northeast in spring and the southwest in autumn, but they didn't do it. So what gave you a clue that there was something maybe interfering with the bird's migration system? Well, it was obvious that there was something we were doing wrong because I had done the same experiments in Denmark during my doctoral thesis, and there those experiments worked fine. So we tried all kinds of things. We changed the food, we changed the cages, we changed the light in the room, we changed a lot of different things, and nothing seemed to help until one day... A postdoc of mine uh, got the idea that maybe we should try to screen it, like build a Faraday cage around our setup so that electromagnetic noise was screened. And honestly, I didn't think the likelihood that that would make any difference was very large. But by that time, we were willing to try almost anything to get these birds to show their natural behavior. And so once you started screening out the electromagnetic fields, uh, what did you start to see? The birds started to orient just as they were supposed to do and like they had done in my experiments in Denmark. And I was like, really? That (laughs) was very unexpected. And anyway, I was happy because we could start doing those experiments that we had wanted to do all the time. So that's what we did first. We focused on doing the experiments we had been planning all the time. It was also immediately clear to me that if the improved orientation was really due to the screening of the electromagnetic noise, then that was a very important finding in its own right. So a year later, we tested that more directly by just thinking about the prediction. A Faraday cage only works when it's grounded. Basically, if you disconnect the grounding of the Faraday cage, then it doesn't screen anymore. So we basically did the simple experiments of 
disconnecting or connecting the grounding without the students doing the experiments knowing that we were doing it. And suddenly it became clear that on the days when they were tested ungrounded, they were random. And in, on the days they were grounded, they were oriented very fine. Were there any particular frequencies that you found were interfering with the birds? We see an effect of frequencies ranging from about 50 kilohertz up to about 5 megahertz. And we can be sure that it's not power lines, for instance, because the frequency of power lines is typically 16.7 hertz or 50 hertz, so much, much lower frequency. And we can also say that it's not mobile phones because mobile phone communication takes place in gigahertz range, so billions of hertz. So basically, it's middle wave radio. And what do you think are the implications of this? If sort of radio signals produced by regular radios and all kinds of electronic devices are interfering with our songbirds' migration? Well, they only do so very close to the source. So the bird seems to have only a problem in urban areas, not in rural areas. It could also be a more serious problem if, for instance, the birds determine their flight direction prior to takeoff and then they keep that direction for a full night, then they would fly wrong for a full night if they were sitting in an urban area in case it's overcast because birds have more than one compass. They have a magnetic compass, a star compass, and a sun compass. And as long as they get good information from one of them, they are generally okay finding their right migratory direction. So I don't know how big this effect would be on wild birds, but I'm pretty sure the birds would find it better if they could use all their navigation systems at all locations at all times. That's Henrik Moritzen from the University of Oldenburg. And if you'd like to follow up on the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for those news items on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash news. You'll be pleased to hear, Kat, that I also tweeted that story about migratory birds. No, I really did. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, you can tweet at Naked Scientist, whether or not you're a migrating bird. You can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, for the last 80 years or so, homes in the UK and other industrialised countries have been powered using a national grid system. And this means that power stations all around the country can share the load if one of them should break down. The other ones then take up the slack. And because our patterns of energy use are quite easy to predict, the telly gets boring, people put the kettle on, for example, it's been a relatively easy task to turn power stations on and off in anticipation of when we're going to need them. But as we introduce new ways to make electricity, including sources like solar and wind, the grid has a problem because these alternatives don't produce power at a constant rate like a coal-fired power station. When the wind drops or the sun goes in, as often happens in Britain, the power supply dwindles. So this week we're exploring how new technology and even maths can solve the problem. One way to deal with this is to invent a new smart national grid system which controls how we use power according to how much is actually available. Gunter Konzelman is working on this very problem and he's at Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago. We've done this experiment for 80 years. We can fairly well forecast what that demand will be next hour, five hours from now or tomorrow. However, there's new technologies that come into play that change that now. If you now put a solar panel on your rooftop, what happens on a day when we have intermittent clouds moving through the area? In essence, your net consumption changes from almost minute to minute to second to second. And so those fluctuations are very different than what we've observed for the last 70, 80 years. 
So we have to be able to handle that and manage that. Is it the dream that the grid will become switchable? It will direct energy into different places at different times in order to make it reactive? Very much so. But we're trying essentially to convert the grid from a flip phone to a smartphone. And so with that smarter grid, we can react to unanticipated changes and we can accommodate those changes much more rapidly. So the obvious question is, so what's stopping you? We have some of the technologies are available. It's just a matter of implementing those technologies and advancing some of the technologies. 4% of our electricity comes from wind power. If we want to go to 20, 30, 40% wind power that fluctuates all the time, then we need to do better than what we do now. At the moment, uh, a lot of this smart metering technology is in people's own homes. Yeah. It's telling them where they're using the power and encouraging them, led by price, to change their behaviour. Yeah. But to do what you're saying would involve the power station or the grid itself sending a signal to my house to say, right, the grid's under heavy load at the moment. Have you got some systems running that actually you probably could turn off for 10 minutes or so to give the grid a bit of a rest? That's a bit different, though, isn't it? That technology exists. I have one of those meters. I've had it for the last five years, and I get messages every day when the grid gets strained, meaning that translates to a high price. My phone tells me now would be a good time to turn something off. Now, that still depends on me then making a decision and actually actively doing something. So we want to move away from that. So, for example, if your refrigerator gets turned off for two minutes, you won't notice a difference whatsoever. Your food will still be cold. So what we want to do is we want to get to a situation where it's fully automated and your appliances do this all in the background without you even have to warn about it. It's not a problem with that, though, that if the grid goes under load, lots of things turn themselves off all at once and all together in synchrony, yes. and then you get a huge surge, and then everything goes, oh, there's a big surfeit of power. Now everything turns itself back yes. on again, and the whole grid goes through these horrible cycles of boom and bust, which yes. ultimately puts enormous load on the yes. technology. Good point. The Germans have realized this with their solar PV panels, where all the solar PV small-scale installations on all people's rooftops had a control signal built in that said, if the grid is strained to a certain point, at that point, turn off. And it, the problem is you had a million of those, and if that were to happen, a million of them turning off at the same time, the grid would collapse. It couldn't handle that and because this would happen within a fraction of a second. So one research area clearly is to develop control theories and control algorithms and the underlying technology to move to something where we have not just one controller, but we have millions of them, and they talk to each other. They're sensitive to what the others are doing. Then we can avoid these problems. Have we got a grid to practice on? You don't want to do these experiments on a large scale. So we build these, we test them in the laboratory, and then we try to validate them on the computer too. And then eventually we'll move them out to small-scale real grids, right? And so right now we don't do this, but you could envision that we work with the argon on-site grid. You usually don't experiment with a real system that has millions of customers on it until you're really, really, really sure the thing works the way it's designed to. And how far away do you think we are from that dream? We sort of have a five to ten year outlook so that we develop the tools, the control tools, the modeling tools in the first five. And then in the second five year period that we actually would deploy them and roll them out and test them. Do you envisage any problems with retrofitting this into people's homes? Is there not going to be a huge cost of implementation? 
one of the criteria that we always include when we make a plan is clean, reliable, resilient, but also affordable, right? Because that is a key thing. It's a key thing to you as a consumer, you and your household, as well as the industry. Gunter Kunzelman, he's from Argonne National Laboratories. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. If you have any comments or feedback for us here at The Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. The increased use of renewable technologies means that energy availability will fluctuate more. To counter this, a number of so-called energy sponge technologies are being developed that can soak up excess energy from the grid and then wring it back out when less is available. James McNaughton is the CEO of Isentropic. They're a company that are looking to develop ways to store this surplus electricity as a temperature difference. Thanks for joining us, James. Hello. Uh, Hello, Kat, and good evening. So can you start by uh, explaining to me, basically, how does your technique work? The technology works by what we call a thermomechanical process, where we take electricity and we use it to drive a, a machine, a heat engine, which creates a supply of hot and cold. And we store the hot and the cold, and then when you want your electricity back... Uh, you take your hot and cold and you run it back through the heat engine and this generates electricity which you feed back into the grid. What can you store this heat in? I mean, in a jar? Where where do you store it? So we spent several years developing um, what we call thermal stores and they're very large devices and they're really quite sophisticated. But the critical point is that we use a very simple natural material which is crushed rock as the actual media within these thermal stores to store the heat and to store the cold. So it's basically you've got hot gravel and you've got cold gravel. That's exactly right. (laughs) It sounds so simple. So when you're taking the the temperature difference between your hot gravel and your cold gravel and turning it back into energy, is this actually an efficient process? Because I know with things like the hydroelectric storage where they let water run down and then pump it back up so you can let it run down and, and generate energy when you need it, they're not terribly efficient. In terms of efficiency, it's often sort of slightly misunderstood. With pumped hydro, they have roughly 75% round-trip efficiency. So for every four units of energy you put into them, you get about three out. And that's an inevitability when you have real physical processes going on. And we're no different. But the critical point about energy storage is that it allows you to move electricity from a time of day when you don't need it to a time of day when you need it. Effectively, it reduces the waste on the system. Because that's obviously the problem, as we've discussed. You can't just suddenly turn everything on, turn it off. But how quickly can you flip this process around from storing electricity to releasing it back out, you know, when everyone needs to put the kettle on during Corrie? Well, our system is very fast. We can go from full charging to full discharging in less than a second. And we've spent a lot of time making sure that it would be able to respond on a very quick basis because that's really what we see the market needing. If you have cloud cover going over and you imagine a big solar farm, you suddenly see a very rapid drop in power generation. And likewise, with gusty conditions around wind farms, you can see very rapid changes in power output over short periods of time. So this sounds like a great idea. You've got a technology that works. It's quite efficient. It's really fast. The big question is, how close is it? How close are you to to making this reality that could be plugged into our grid? So at the moment, we're building our first commercial scale system in our factory, where we're based in Fairham in Hampshire. And we also have a contract to build a larger system to go on to a UK substation that should be operational in 2017. In terms of the time to roll out, it'll be several years beyond that before you're able to sell at large scale. So really, from where we are now to 
being in a sort of uh, the ability to deploy commercially, you're talking about five or six years. And what what sort of thing are we talking about in terms of size? I mean, I'm imagining, you know, Chris has said to me, a gravel pit, you know, what kind of size would these units be sitting next to a substation? Well, if you took a 20 by 40 metre industrial building, that would basically be able to store enough electricity to supply a small town. So 2,000 homes, to give you a sort of feel for the scale of it. You, we can obviously make them smaller, but that is the sort of, I think, the, the maximum size we'd expect them to be built in any one installation. And just very briefly, I mean, this is obviously a very exciting technology. Are you hopeful now that people are really starting to change the way we think about storing energy? Do you, are you positive that this could be the way to do it in the future? Oh, we, we've seen massive changes in the market, even in the last year, People have seen how far the price of solar panels have fallen over the last four years. And you now have the situation where in large parts of the world, people can install solar PV without any subsidy at all and actually save themselves money. And we see this phenomenon growing. And to manage this large amount of solar, what you're seeing is people looking for solutions like energy storage. Because if you don't have energy storage, you end up needing to have a far greater number of power stations just sitting idle waiting for when the wind drops or the sun goes in. And energy storage effectively allows you to reduce that number of power stations and to waste less electricity. Sounds all brilliant. Thank you very much. That's James McNaughton from Isentropic. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. This week we're talking about powering the future with smart grids and also ways to store surplus electrical energy. But moving energy along transmission lines comes at a very big cost because power gets lost along the way. But those losses can be made lower if the electricity is transmitted at higher voltages, which is why the current UK national grid operates at up to 400,000 volts. Now the technology company ABB are working on developing even higher voltage systems that could operate at up to a million volts, which they think could transport power much further and much more efficiently. David Hughes is from ABB and he's working on this project. Hello, David. Hello. Tell us first of all a little bit about the present national grid that we use at the moment. How does it work? The present national grid was developed between the 30s and the 50s and it was typically around a large centralised power stations very close to large population centres. But now what we're seeing is a, a very different demand. We're seeing tidal, we're seeing wind, we're seeing solar, we're seeing biomass and also where the load is in wind, as in Scotland, to where the consumers are in England, the power has to be moved between Scotland and England. Also, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations and found that you wouldn't actually need to use more than about a fifth to a half of the Sahara Desert and cover it with solar panels. And in fact, you could generate enough electricity to meet most of the world's energy demands, but most of the problem comes with getting the energy from the Sahara to where we need it. You are, you are absolutely correct, and this has been a big dilemma across majority of Europe. If you take Europe as an example, you have wind in the north of Europe and you have solar in the south of Europe. So moving solar when the wind doesn't blow up to the northern Europe and moving the wind when the wind does blow and, and the sun doesn't shine down to countries like Spain, that is a different dilemma and a different equation. And obviously the solutions we have as ABB are putting in place for a, an integrated European network. We'll come back to David Hughes in just a second, because first we need to go to Dave 
Ansel's garage because we did a neat little experiment this week to explain why actually jacking the voltage up to very high levels can save you quite a lot of energy when it comes to transporting your electricity. Power stations aren't inside your house, so we've got to somehow get that electricity to somewhere where we can use it. The obvious way to do this would be to just transmit it at normal 240 volts like you would do around your house. And I've got a little model showing roughly what would happen. What I've got is a power supply which is producing 6 volts AC. This voltage is pushing electricity through some quite long wires to a light bulb which is modelling your washing machine or your lights in your house. So this long wire, that's like the, the national grid? Yeah, in reality, it would be thousands of miles long, but in our case, it's only about a metre. But it's got lots of resistance, so it behaves very similarly. And the light bulb is barely glowing. This is because as you push current through a wire, you lose lots of energy. And the more the current is, the more energy you lose. And so very, very little of that energy is ending up in the light bulb, so it's very, very dim. Because we've turned most of the energy into heat, effectively, in the national grid, the transmission wires, before it got anywhere near the light bulb. Indeed. So the power stations, if they transmitted electricity at mains voltage, this would be happening. The lights in the houses would be dim and the transmission lines would actually lose most of the energy on the way to the houses. That's right. So to get round this, the power companies use a fundamental piece of physics. And this is the amount of power, so the amount of energy you're using per second, is the current times the voltage. So how much electricity is flowing times how hard you're pushing it. So you can transmit the same amount of power either at a low voltage and a high current or at a very, very high voltage and a very low current. And because all the energy losses are to do with the current, the higher the voltage, the lower the losses. So hopefully the more power gets to your house. So if we were to step up the six volts of AC that your power station is pushing into our national grid and then step it down again to six volts at the other end of your miniature national grid, we should lose less energy in the transmission lines because the current is lower and that means the light bulb should be correspondingly brighter. That's right. And to do that, what I've got is um, two devices called transformers. This one will convert that six volts up to about 45 volts and so this will increase the voltage by a factor of about eight. And I've got another one which will drop it down again, back to six volts, hopefully. So we're going to put one of these transformers close to our power station, our six volt supply. And this is going to step the voltage up. And therefore, the current will go down to keep the power the same. And at the other end of our transmission lines, we're going to put a second transformer, which is going to step the voltage back down, and therefore the current back up, but only in a short supply line into the lamp. So we should see the light lighting up brighter. So there should be much less energy lost in the national grid and the light should work a lot better. OK, so let's wire this up then. So you've got them on a chock block for ease of connection. And this should give us between 40 and 50 volts out of the 6 volt supply. That's the idea. So now we're on to the second transformer. So this is the step down again at the other end of our transmission line. So this is going to return the voltage to the 6 volts, hopefully, that we began with and at a proportionally higher current. And, whoa, now that's quite a stunning difference. I'd say that's a good five times brighter. That sounds about right. There's far, far less energy getting lost because we're forcing much less current through the wires and so everything's much more efficient and our light bulbs work much better. If I were to measure the temperature in the wires, would I therefore see that it was getting less hot with this setup because it's losing less energy as heat? Yeah, and this means that the national grid loses probably less than 5% of its energy um, to transmission like this.
Thank you very much to Dave Answer. We'll put the pictures of our little experiment on our website, nakedscientist.com, as well, so you can take a look at the difference that transmitting at high voltage achieved. So, David Hughes, that's the, the physics behind why you want to transmit energy at high voltages. The difference between our system and our experiment and what you're proposing is you're going to use DC, direct current, rather than alternating current AC. Why is that? The reason why we use DC is purely down to the losses, as, as you heard in the previous piece. When you're moving HVDC over a thousand kilometres, that's high the, voltage DC. At high yeah. voltage DC, the, the percentage of power loss is around three percent. When you compare that to AC, power that you could in theory lose is between thirty and forty percent. So it makes good economic and commercial sense to go for HVDC. The good thing about AC, as we demonstrated, is that you can very easily convert electricity from one voltage to another using a transformer because you have this changing field in your transformer because you've got a changing current. If you use direct current, how do you step the voltage up and down like we do with AC? Are you going to have to run it through some kind of inverter like the people who have solar cells on their roof? Yes, in theory, you're quite correct. What we do is the current and the voltage is transformed over DC and then we have large converter stations where we convert back to AC. So historically, when you're moving large currents at AC, you have problems interfacing with the frequency, where DC, it is very, very simple, and you just convert straight back to AC. We look forward to seeing megavolt DC networks coming online soon. Thank you very much, David Hughes. He's from the technology company ABB, who are pioneering this technology at the moment. Cat. So we can improve the grid, but with added fluctuations from more renewable energy being used, we have to make sure that our power networks work efficiently to predict and manage energy use. We're joined now by mathematician Peter Grindrod from Oxford University, who's working on a pilot scheme in Bracknell in Berkshire, of all places, to examine how we can improve the network's effectiveness. Hi, Peter. Hi there, Kat. So um, can you basically very briefly explain what is the current problem with how our, our network is working? Well, we're working on a project with Scottish and Southern Energy Power Distribution who own the network or distribute energy through towns like Bracknell in the south of England. And the problem that we've got is that um, people are going to be putting more and more technology, more and more demand and more and more generation onto the network. So the old wires that were put in there for one thing are now going to have to be used in a much more flexible way. We're particularly thinking about low voltage networks, so that's the last mile, if you like, from the substation to your house. And on such networks, there aren't lots and lots of customers. There might be 100 houses on a network. So when we look at their profile, it's not smooth at all. Every time somebody produces a demand, like turning their dishwasher on or their, uh, their kettle, actually that produces spikes. Now, this is an opportunity, really, because over the next few years, we're all going to get smart meters put into our homes. So for the first time, we'll have some idea of the different patterns of use by different households. And when we look at such patterns um, in typical residential areas, we find that um, some people are very volatile and some people are very predictable and do the same thing every day. Well, if you've got some means of storage, and we've heard about some storage with uh, hot and cold gravel, or you've got just a hot tank of water in your home, if you've got some means of storing energy, then you'll be able to take advantage of that situation because it's likely that the price of energy will vary during the day. And now you're able to monitor, or rather just a, a, a smart meter is able to monitor your usage. Actually, what it can do is kind of take energy out when it's cheap and then give 
give you that energy back. But it must do so, just as uh, as we heard from Argon, from Gunter, it must do so in a way that we have a passive customer. We can't have everybody worrying about when they're going to use energy, when they're going to turn I, the cooker on. I was going to say, you know, it's like I'm coming home from work in half an hour, you know, once I've done the radio show, I want, I want to turn the cooker on. It needs to know that I'm coming home. So how, how can your, the kind of stuff that you're working on, how can maths help to predict these kind of demands? So that's quite challenging. It's a, it's, it's a really good example of modern maths, actually. What we do is we want to write algorithms that monitor what you do from day to day and from week to week. And gradually that chip, which sits in your home nice and securely, uh, will learn what you do. And so it will automatically take care of uh, those predictions of high spikes and those predictions of times when you're using less energy. And really the problem for maths is that we don't want a sort of medium forecast. We want to predict where the spikes are going to become, how big they're going to be and in particular we'd like to predict them slightly early so that then we can uh, control any storage or any other devices but, we've got on the network. But I guess the challenge is you know I for example don't do this radio show every week so how, how do you guess that I'm not going to use the cooker at half past seven? Well so some of your uh, some of your demands will be uh, fairly fixed a lot of people have to catch a school bus in the morning and, and uh, um, some of your demands will be extremely discretionary and, and, and won't be fixed. But actually, um, quite a lot of usage is predictable. The difficulty is, is that um, you're getting on living your life. So we have this notion in Bracknell of looking at lots of domestic users and trying to figure out how many of them are so volatile that no amount of forecasting and no amount of energy storage or time shifting, demand shifting would be useful. And how many customers and how many substations are going to be able to um, uh, deal with this in a very profitable way. It's a kind of win-win, really. So I was going to ask about the Bracknell project. I mean, uh, why Bracknell? I used to live there. And how does it work? What are you actually doing? Okay, well, we chose Bracknell because it's got a bit of everything. It's not a space town like Milton Keynes or something like that. It's got lots of housing estates and it's got some older properties, which are sort of mixed, what we say, heterogeneous. They've got a mixture of of small retail and housing. And then, of course, it's also got some big uh, business parks. Many companies that are part of our project have their headquarters quarters there. So we chose it because it had lots of typical areas and so that we could meter up um, some residents. Of course, eventually everybody will get a smart meter in the UK but what we've done is intensively meter up some residents so that we could have a look at how many substations, how many local networks are um, in trouble and might need some uh, smart uh, management and of course there'll be others that aren't in trouble at all. They've got lots of capacity. At the moment we don't monitor those so we don't really know. And of course at the same time people are getting electric vehicles they're getting solar power, they're maybe getting heat pumps. There's going to be new technology invented over the next five to ten years which we haven't thought of yet and all of that's going to have to go on these low voltage networks and kind of domestic consumers are just going to expect it all to work seamlessly. So what we want to do is to put a sort of smart layer in that helps them do that. Well I'd certainly hope so and hope that it keeps the lights on. Thanks very much That's Peter Grindrod from Oxford University Thank you, Kat. Well, let's now join Hannah Critchlow for our question of the week and a burning issue. This week, we light up our brains with this. Hello, my name is Ilham Jardine. I'm from Lanasia in Johannesburg in South Africa. And my question is, why does fire burn? So, what is fire and why? 
does it burn? We ignite the issue with Professor of Chemistry and Fire Science, Richard Hull, from Lancaster University. Imagine gas coming out of the cooker or from a cigarette lighter. The gas mixes with air, but nothing happens. But a small spark sets off a chain reaction resulting straight away in a hot flame. What causes this huge difference? The spark's got enough energy to break a few molecules into pieces. We call them free radicals, which react billions of times faster than the fuel and air gas molecules. When they react, they give out lots of heat and light, producing a flame. That flame can produce more radicals and spread to other things, starting a fire. When a solid like wood is heated, maybe with a flame, some of it turns to gaseous fuel, which mixes with air and, like the lighter, it too starts to burn. Fire is incredibly important. Being able to control it opened the door to cooking, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, almost all forms of power generation and most atmospheric pollution. Yet, still, it can grow out of control and have absolutely devastating consequences. Thanks, Richard. And as long as there's oxygen, fuel and heat, a fire, once ignited, can burn indefinitely. And the world record for the longest burning fire is a bed of coal, 30 metres underground, beneath Mount Winnegan in New South Wales, Australia. And it's still smouldering, thought to be ignited by a lightning strike hitting the top of the coal over 5,000 years ago. Well, with that burning question extinguished, we get a heading gear to answer this. Hi, my name is Suzanne and I live in Runcorn, Cheshire. I wanted to ask a question about common over-the-counter painkillers such as ibuprofen, paracetamol and aspirin. We've all taken them for pain relief, but I wanted to know, does each drug achieve this pain relief in a different way within the body? And are certain painkillers more effective to combat different types of pain? Many thanks. So what's the difference between paracetamol, aspirin and ibuprofen? Think you know the answer? Then get in touch. And if you can help Hannah, here's how. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, James McNaughton, David Hughes and Peter Grindrod. Thank you also to Katani for joining me. Production was by Kate Lamble. Next week, we'll be looking underground at extreme bacteria and industrial cleanups. I've been down a gold mine and I'll be telling you how bugs discovered lurking three kilometres underground can help us to clear up the mess we're making on the surface and extract rare earth materials. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith. This is RN and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.